G'day, it's Phil here. The last two weeks on this special series of The Game Changers with Nicole Dyson, where we're looking at our series theme of a flourishing future, which is designing for a better normal. We're supposed to be talking about designing a life of purpose. I'm not sure we've actually been designing a life of purpose. I think we've been living a life of purpose and trying to find the design in it along the way, but maybe that's some of the way it is. It's been a real privilege to get to know Nicole so far. I'm really excited to explore the latter part of her career today. I can't wait to talk to you about Future Anything and all the different entrepreneurship programs that Nicole has been getting into. Let's go. Before you start your conversation with today's Game Changers special series guest, Phil, can you share with our audience a little insight into our special series sponsor? Thanks, Adriana. Of course I can. Man Cave Academy provides unique training programs that are designed to share the Man Cave's experience from working with over 20,000 teenage boys across Australia. Learn more at themancave.life. That's themancave.life. Let's go. Thank you, Nicole, for joining me again. Uh, stoked to be here again. And um, yeah, looking forward to the next part of the conversation too. It's been a wild ride so far. Thank you, Nicole. All right. So when we, where we were last time, we were talking about you in schools and we were talking about you growing through the development of your expertise and that deep place of, of humility as you're talking about how you're recognising the things that you're not doing so well and, and taking responsibility for them and growing into the next stage. At some point, you go from being a person who works in a school to a person who works with schools. I know what that moment's like. I remember that moment when I sat there and went, I think that's what I need to do. Tell me about that moment for you. When, when did you work out, I need to be working with schools, not in a school? Yeah, look, I, I think I'd, um, I'd been working in lots of pastoral care roles with young people, but I, I remember teaching an all boys year nine English class. And they were a class where their reading age was maybe, you know, quite low comparatively to their year level. And it was supposed to be sort of a class where they'd get some intensive support. Um, and, uh, you know, as, as I've sort of mentioned before, I only had two rules in the classroom. You know, we listen when somebody speaks and if we waste time, we pay it back. And in this one particular lesson, I remember two of the boys took like a, a bathroom break, but, th- but they took one of those bathroom breaks where they go via the water bubbler on the other side of the school. So it takes, you know... 13 minutes instead of six um, because they've taken the scenic route to get back. And so, you know, as per the expectations, they were repaying back that 10 minutes that they'd wasted in their lunch break. And um, I was sitting there and they were working away and one of the boys sort of looked up at me and he said, um, I don't mean to be rude, miss, but um, at which point I kind of, you know, I knew nothing good was going to happen at the end of that sentence. I was already thinking ahead about how much paperwork <laughs> I was going to have to fill out at the end of that sentence. Like I was supposed to be going out for dinner that night and I was like, oh, I'm going to be lost in administrative paperwork and maybe it'll be a suspension. And I, I was not in the moment. I was already like losing time, you know, as the sentence finished. And I almost yelled out and said, stop, like just to try and prevent what was going to happen. And he said, uh, I don't mean to be rude, miss, but why are we doing this? Um, and look, you know, I'd be lying if I said it was the first time I'd been asked the question, but I, I do think maybe it was the first time I heard the question. And I sat for a moment before I answered and um, the boys were doing a novel study, but the text was like a, a novel. I mean, these were boys that had reading level of like maybe grade four and it was the year nine text. So they were struggling to engage with the complexity of the novel in the first place. 
Uh, the protagonist was a girl, you know, this was a class full of boys, like, so the content wasn't even that riveting or connected to them. Um, the task was to write an analytical essay. I don't think the boys could say or spell analytical essay, let alone, you know, write a full one. And I just remember thinking in that moment, oh, you know, I, I didn't know how to answer. So I remember looking at him and saying, because we have to, and I'm sorry. Um, and I was. I, I was really sorry that the curriculum was so prescriptive or I felt in that moment so prescriptive that there wasn't greater flexibility to tailor the learning experience to be more connected to their sense of self and their sense of the world. And, um, and so I remember walking into my Hod's office and going, I can't do this unit. Like I just, I've been called to account and it was fair. And I need, I need to be able to do something different. And um, I think, you know, all great stories start with like permission. <laughs> and um, in this moment, you know, I was lucky to have a leader who, who, who stepped back and, and had enough space, I think, in me and, and gave me the flexibility and the freedom to play with that piece of curriculum. So instead of writing an analytical essay, I um, had the young people engage with a movie that was a little bit more aligned to the stuff that they're interested in but we sort of analyzed that text and then I had the students pitch um, how that could be transformed into a book or a graphic novel that would engage boys their age back into reading novels. There's, that, just, re there's uh, that reading thing coming through again isn't there? Yeah <laughs> totally you caught me out but I, I just they came they lit up in the process because they saw they didn't love reading and so providing them an avenue to almost convince others to read a book that they would find interesting like spoke to who they were um, and, and their sense of the world and what mattered and um, I realized really quickly that sometimes we think that engagement is related to fun and I fundamentally believe now that engagement is related to relevance um, and if a young people can if a young person can see the relevance of the learning experience it doesn't have to be fun and they don't have to be good at it, but they'll try because they can see that it matters. Um, and so that was a bit of a catalyst moment for me in kind of re-looking at all of our curriculum. And I quickly learned that maybe some of the barriers we think exist within our curriculum are, are actually, um, they're not there. We think it's super prescriptive and we think that we can't play. The senior schools are different um, kettle of fish, but certainly in that, seven to 10 space, um, our curriculum has these like beautiful opportunities to transform learning into these real world experiences and, and learning opportunities for young people. But we often just kind of follow the, the, the track that we've, we've made before and, and we don't think about how we can transform that learning to better serve the young people that are in our classrooms now. Um, so I think I just started playing with curriculum. Um, and the more I played with curriculum, the more I started to wonder, could we do this across more than one school? Like I can see how this is really working for, for young people in the school that I'm working in, but my gosh, like we've got educators everywhere that are writing curriculum all the time. Like what if we just had like really great curriculum that was coupled with, you know, capacity building for educators? Because we know that when we've got confident educators, we have more engaging classrooms. And then what if we created like this opportunity for young people to connect what that task looks like in the classroom to stuff that's happening in the real world. And I mean, would it work at scale? Could, could we do it with one school and then, and then do it across more? And 
I sort of came to a question where I had to work out, did I want to do like good work in, in one school or did I want to maybe do great work across many schools and, and support educators to, to do something like this, you know, everywhere. Um, and I, I think, you know, I've always harked back to a bit of a, uh, like a saying for me, which is like, what's the worst that could happen? <laughs> so I kind of looked at the worst that could happen is that I'd step outside the system and, and I would fail but I would learn from that experience and I knew that I could always go back to education. Like I, I knew that I could always step back into a classroom and teach or step back into a leadership position in a school if I wanted to. So, you know, what was the worst that could, ha that could happen? Really nothing. Um, but the potential to do something really interesting and great for young people was, yeah, it was there. And I just, I had to give it a crack. Thank you again for sharing your, your generosity in sharing these moments and the very self-revealing fashion in which you do it. I think uh, is, a, is, is a very powerful truth that you speak there. Um, it's very grounded um, and I'm, I'm deeply appreciative of it. I think um, sometimes I wonder if, if, if our listeners out there get why we do these conversations in the way we do. And, and I think part of what's really important for me is that as, as educators, we can find ourselves in a mode where we are operating and thinking in a mode which is not the mode of the world in which our students are going to thrive. We can find ourselves mm. in a space where we define what we do in a box. We try and control the box and we've talked about control already in, this, in, in our conversations. We can think it's about the transmission of content and a transaction where you, where you release your expertise or your knowledge um, uh, to students and then they have to feed it back to you and you get the capacity to grade their ability to replicate what you've given them without stopping to think about what is the nature of the world we live in today and why we have um, uh, the society that we have, how it functions and whether or not we're really preparing kids for it. Um, I'm, I'm not convinced that the world that I was educated for was ever there, but I can certainly remember in 1989 watching the Berlin Wall fall and it hit me at that moment as a 19 year old in, you know, deep, deeply uncertain about anything I was doing at that point in time. But what hit me at that point saying the world is changing. If mm. there is order in the world, that order is now gone and something else is replacing it. And increasingly over the, over the years that have passed since then, you know, 30 odd years that have passed since then, we, we have a fluid world. We have a dynamic world. We have a very fast paced world control is impossible in this world um, what we can do though is we can contribute and and we can try and put our best selves forward what is the best self that young people today need to be putting forward to thrive in the world nicole oh look um i remember being a young person in my math classroom it was like year 10 and um, I remember my teacher like calling me out in the classroom and I, you know, this is compliant, polite, diligent Nicole who, you know, practically cried after this happened. But I must have been distracted in a moment in time and the teacher said to me, you know, Nicole, you really need to pay attention to this. It's, it's, not, like, it's not like you're going to have a calculator in your pocket everywhere you go. And I mean, it's so ironic now because we do, like we have calculators, we have thesaurus, we have dictionary, like any piece of content that we need to access or know is, is moments away from us having. And so if I think about what young people need in order to thrive in the future of work, it's like the skills and capabilities um, to be collaborative, 
creative, um, confident problem solvers. Because if we've got a generation of young people that can identify problems in front of them and feel like they've got the skills and space to solve them in really productive, proactive, um, empathetic uh, ways, then I think we're going to be okay. Okay, so let's just get technical for a moment. Let's pretend we're chalkies. One of the big arguments that we have in the world of chalkydom, and, and I'll, I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to avoid that word pedagogy because, you know, yeah, yeah. as soon as, you, as, soon as you, were, you use the word pedagogy, you just lose all reasonable human beings in the conversation. We have an argument essentially that, that's going on between the world of explicit or direct instruction and the world mm. of problem or inquiry-based learning, which is probably informed by some sort of constructivist notion. And, and the idea is, is teaching about defining a box and then giving yeah. each piece of that box to kids so that they can replicate it and demonstrate mastery of it and move on? Or is it about asking a question which helps kids to construct a box? And along the way, we may model and we may scaffold what a box looks like and the essential components of it. But the nature of that box needs to be determined by the students there. The experienced person who's not being ideological about this says there's, a, there's, there's room in what we do for both and there's moments where we need to do this and there's moments where we need to do that and so on and that we, we have to have a repertoire. We can't just base ourselves in one place. Although if you go onto Twitter, of course, you'll find the explicit <laughs> instruction people who are obsessive about that and then you'll find the constructivists who are, who are obsessive about that and you'd think that the world's falling apart. I think the world that our kids are moving into and, you know, for those people who are under 30, they're already there, is a world of uncertainty. Um, mm. I don't think it's a world where there is a fixed canon of anything and instead it's a movable feast for which you almost have to find your point of connection and then define your momentum and you've got to be prepared to shed as much as it is you've got to be prepared to learn and, and keep evolving and to keep adapting. My thinking around this, therefore, is that the way that we teach needs to reflect the tone of the society in which kids operate. Um, it used to be, you know, you talk about being at, at, at school as a, as a quite introspective student. Every, every student now, I think, needs to leave school with a sense of what their voice is and what they have to contribute mm. and their agency in relation to it. Because if they don't, the world's just going to ignore them because there's no job that they can just fall into and be quiet and be told what to do. They've got to exercise a certain um, degree of autonomy and they've got to exercise a certain degree of mastery and they need to connect that to a sense of purpose in the world. So it's a very, very long-winded way of saying, how do we help shape learning for students that matches the character of the world that we're living in? Great question. I, I look, I think there's a few things that I'd love to say to that. The first thing is if you're a teacher in a classroom and you believe that you're an expert practitioner, then, then that's probably the time to step out of the classroom because the nature of the world is shifting. And, and I think the best educators are ones who recognise that at any moment in time, there's more to learn because the next class of young people will likely be different. And therefore, those young people will need different things. Um, you know, as we know, curriculum and classrooms are not one size fits all. And so the ability for us to be able to choose a pedagogy for a particular purpose, I think, is, is, is the power of education. Um, and I think that, you know, one of the great myths about 
project-based or inquiry-based learning is that you kind of throw a question to young people and then you come back in 10 weeks time and they're submitting a project and it's just not like that at all. We're talking about, um, you know, the arc of a project or an inquiry-based unit is the same as a traditional classroom. There's still scaffolded support and then a gradual release of responsibility where young people then have the capacity, the space and the skills to meaningfully tackle that open-ended question in a really purposeful way. So. Um, there's a place for explicit teaching, but I think the power is in how we um, shape our assessment tasks um, as journeys of inquiry that relate to the real world. I think if, if we can't connect the curriculum to the real world, then why are we teaching it? And, and we have to really be asking ourselves that question as educators. If there is no real world context for that piece of curriculum, is it actually important? Or are we just checking a box for the sake of it because we think we have to? Um, and I, I think, you know, it's, it's being responsive to the learners that are in the room and it's, it's building the skills, the capacities and the capabilities of our young people to be self-directed, independent learners. Because if I'm the keeper of all the knowledge and the keeper of all of the feedback and the keeper of all of the ways that they need to get better and do more, um, when they leave us at the end of their 12 years of schooling and they don't have that educator telling them, you know, how to do the assignment, uh, giving them the feedback on where they need to get better, you know, nudging them when they don't hand it in on time. If that person isn't there anymore, then, then how do they navigate the real world? If they don't have that drive um, to get better and do better on their own, if they don't have the capacity to identify and solve problems, if they don't know where to go, to find the right information. If they don't have the critical literacy to identify the difference between quality information and information that's not like, you know, it's safer as the educator to be the sage on the stage because all we have to do is provide the information and then make sure that it's returned to us in the same order. Um, it, it can be a scary place of uncertainty as an educator to stand at the front of the room and say, I don't have all the answers, but let's like work it out together. And I have the faith in you as a young person to navigate this with my support on the side rather than having to drive the car for them. So let's talk about that. Thank you. Thank you. That's an, it, it, that's an absolutely exquisitely phrased approach, um, much better than I could possibly come up with. I'm interested in that notion of that scary moment of uncertainty because the scary moment of uncertainty, I think, is all about recognising that what, we, what we're doing um, needs to be framed through the lens of the student. Dare I say it's student-centred. You know, the most misunderstood and poorly executed of all things in education, really, because being student-centred doesn't mean expressing care and compassion for kids. We can care a lot about kids and still not get it that our esoteric love for our particular area is of no relevance to them whatsoever and that we should never be offended when someone turns around as they might do to me back in my back in the day when I was I still worked honourably for a living, toiling away at ancient history, they may not have had the same degree of fascination as to the role of the Megarians in starting the Peloponnesian War, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now I, I could have rabbited on about that forever. Why would they be interested in that? If I can't demonstrate that the reason why we study ancient history is less because of the esoteric stuff of old things which held a fascination for me at that point in my life. And it was more about understanding human behaviour and mm. the relationships between different people and why conflict is caused and how power is exercised. Mm. And if I can't make that relevant to their world, why would they bother doing it? 
I think the second thing uh, that you point to um, so well, I think comes down to risk appetite. I think in schools, we can find ourselves in a place very, very quickly where it's very safe and eventually it becomes very comfortable because we become very good at what we do. We develop a grab bag of things that have worked for us in the past, uh, a repertoire of, I'm going to use that word again, pedagogical tricks <laughs> um, and methodologies that's had a degree of effectiveness. Now, we think it's effective because we look around the room and we get emotional validation from, for, from at least a majority of kids in the classroom. We probably never take any evidence to see whether or not learning's actually occurring because we're way too busy to take evidence or, you know, to gather evidence and actually analyze whether or not our teaching's doing anything good, you know? Um, uh, so, you know, and we fall back into this space where it's comfortable. We know what we're doing. We think we're in control. We've got the illusion of control at least. And then we just keep recycling, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat around that sort of stuff. And, and, and I can say this to you because, you know, I had those moments as a teacher in and around that and I had to push myself really push myself hard mm. out of that to find different ways to teach consistently because I found very quickly that I was becoming a parody of myself you know and and mm. and if there's one thing I can reflect on with with absolute certainty in my career um, in all of the things I do that that I quickly become a parody of myself if I take myself seriously um, mm. and I put myself at the center and my ego at the center and my comfort as opposed to saying, let's go on this journey again, let's model the risk appetite, the sense of adventure, the sense of, you know, there's a reason why we say let's go on game changes, because that's what we have to do. You just got to get in there and make it happen. How can we make school more like the world that kids are going into, where there is that uncertainty, mm. there is that adventure, when everything about school, including parents and including parents, but all of us, wants to push us towards predictability, order, safety, control, security, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I keep asking you these very inconsequential questions. No, it's great. Look, I think, um, you know, to, to think, are we, your reflection around like what we take as feedback in the classroom is a really curious one to me because, you know, educators will say, I'll say, how do you know that, that how your teaching is working? And they'll say, well, because you know, everyone's really engaged. And I love to ask the question, are they engaged or are they compliant? Um, what's happening in your classroom right now and how can you measure the difference um, between the learners that are in the space? Because I would say as a young person, I was a very compliant learner, but I don't know that I was engaged in the learning. I was doing it because I thought I had to, because it was the right thing to do, not because I was particularly tapped into um, what was being delivered at the front of the classroom. And you know, I think I loved ancient history and, and I, you know, I think of part course of you did. Because, of course you did. Yes. Yeah, I know my audience. <laughs> but I think there's something powerful in that. Um, one of the most powerful ways we, cre you know, transition young people from being compliant to being engaged is when the educator at the front of the room has that almost exuberant joy for the content that they're delivering to. Like where you can see that, uh, like the, that their connection to, to what they're teaching is something that they find a personal sense of like joy and enjoyment in. And, and that's actually um, very contagious for young people. And it can be like the, one of the most catalytic moments for young people to tap into subject content that they may have perhaps on the surface thought could be uninteresting. 
Um, and we often lose that opportunity for young people because the very first lesson in a new unit of work is spent by doing the unit overview or telling the young people what the assessment task is going to be at the end. You know, at what point is, is that exciting um, young people or engaging them in the potential of this learning opportunity? Um, you know, the place for authenticity for a curriculum is, is at the beginning. If you can provide the contextual relevance through an authentic voice um, from the outset of that piece of curriculum, you're going to tap young people into to why they're learning something um, and you're also gonna tap them into perhaps the potential of that learning experience. So who can we bring into their world to almost um, introduce them to somebody interesting and create that catalytic moment? Because we all do what we do because at some point we met somebody who changed the, you know, our notion of who we are and who we could be. And, and I do think we have a responsibility as educators to be the conduit for conversation for young people, to, to transport them into spaces or conversations that they may not normally have had access to. And I think that's where we do get that when we can create those moments of exuberant joy is in creating those really tangible, authentic moments um, for learning. So I, I think that's one thing. And the second thing that I would speak to is, you know, as educators, we have really poor tolerance for ambiguity. <laughs> um, you know, we like things to be very certain. And so in order for our young people to be able to navigate ambiguity better, we also need to get more comfortable being uncomfortable in ambiguity too. And that means, you know, being honest with young people if we don't know the answer, like let's Google it, <laughs> let's find out the answer, let's explore that together um, in modeling that behavior. And, and the second thing that I would say to that is we also need to get in that really comfortable with young people failing. You know, often we get into education almost as a vocation because we want to save young people. But in actual fact, if we're saving them, we're not serving them. Um, if we, you know, intervene in a young person's learning journey and we stop them um, or prevent them or save them from a moment of failure, we're actually robbing them from a learning experience that could actually um, help them grow and develop into, you know, the young adult um, in the community that they're supposed to be. And so we have to get comfortable with ambiguity. We have to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And second to that, we have to get really comfortable as educators with stepping back um, and allowing young people a moment of growth um, rather than stepping forward. You know, are we saving or serving the young person that's sitting in front of us? There's so much there that you, you, you're talking about which speaks to the, the relationship of character apprenticeship really between the teacher and the, and the student. Can I add a third piece in there, which is about I think we need to allow in our own lives as educators space for ourselves to be creative and curious. We know that um, you're the PE person, you're going to correct me if I've got this wrong, but we know now that the growth of frontal lobe in human beings coincides with the decline of creativity because as our brains develop the capacity to impose order and structure and predictability and planning and organizations on our on our creative and chaotic younger selves that we lose the capacity that young children have got to wonder to be curious to be uh, impish to be playful around what it is that we do and we seek that certainty and we shy away from that ambiguity and I think it's a thing that if we don't practice ourselves we lose and and if we don't draw those connections between our own curious playful learning selves 
um, and we become wrapped up in the seriousness of everything that we do. And most importantly, if we, if we, if we allow ourselves to fall victim to the inevitable stresses of work, then we don't have a chance. So I wonder, what is it that you do now to maintain your sense of creativity and fun and curiosity and playfulness? Yeah, look, I think that's a big one. And um, look, uh, what's interesting is like uh, our education and educators are to blame for that decline in creativity in young people because the further that young people move through school, like we train them that there's one right answer to the questions that are being asked in the classroom and you see it when you do a classroom observation. You know, the educator asks the question, the young people in the room raise their hand, they call on one student, the student offers the answer if it's not the right answer, they'll move on to another student. And that student, without being told that they were wrong, knows that they didn't nail it or else the teacher wouldn't move on because when they get the right answer the first time, nobody else gets a crack. Um, yeah. and, and we create this space of like there's a right and a wrong response. And we, and, you know, and, we, and, you, and, you, and you know, don't you, by the time you've walked into a grade nine or a grade 10 classroom where we've trained them so well in, yeah. you know, the, the hamster wheel of education that, there's no light behind the eyes. They get it. They understand it's a thing to be endured and we move through it. And then we go to university and we do it. We do an even worse thing with them because we tell them that university is going to be a whole lot better and it's not, you know? So, yeah, I think there's a quote from Sal Khan um, from Khan's Academy where he says that, you know, basically we, we reward the young people in the classroom that can sit and take it the longest just sit there and take the content um, without being disruptive or unruly or moving around the classroom or, or expressing any, any form of frustration at the, at the fact that they're supposed to sit and absorb. And I've always reflected on that and thought that's so true. Like the young people that get the A's for effort and behavior are the young people that are in actual fact are the most robotic about their learning experience. Um, and, and I've always found that quite curious. And so when it comes to creativity, we have to completely reroute the conditions of our classroom to enable that. Um, we have to set the conditions for creativity to occur. And if we're working with creativity with those year nine, year 10 space particularly, we have to retrain young people um, and name those conditions at the beginning of, you know, for our program and for the work that I do, if we're doing any sort of ideating around new ideas, it's actually going, you know, all right, we're gonna set up the cultural conditions and the physical conditions to enable creativity to occur in this space. And, and look, design thinking and creativity and ambiguity um, and all of those spaces play can often be messy and chaotic. And I think a lot of teachers find messy and chaotic um, <laughs> perhaps a little bit uncomfortable. So, you know, the question becomes, how are we building the capacity of our educators in order for them to feel confident enabling those cultural and physical conditions for creativity to play? Um, we make a lot of assumptions, I think, that our educators can do everything all at once. You know, we forget the fact that education has shifted so significantly that the degree that I did is no longer relevant for the classroom practice that's required for young people today. Um, and so, you know, it's enabling spaces for leadership teams in schools to really carve out time for teachers to get, to get access to high quality professional learning that's not just about the what, um, but more specifically about the how in the classroom. Um, I think that's really important. And then to, to answer your question about where I get creativity and play from, I mean, I run a program where four and a half thousand young people this year are coming up with their own innovative business ideas to problems they care about, um, which means every classroom I walk into is full of like interesting young people pitching me 
creative ideas that make their world a better place. And if, if that doesn't sort of fill you with a little bit of joy, then I'm not sure what would. Oh, bravo to you. And thank you for, for answering the question I didn't ask first. Um, so I don't have to ask it now. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? That's, I, I write poems and I do podcasts. Um, and that, that keeps me going. You know, when, when I work with Adriano, he's, he's so meticulous in his preparation around these things. And I get into a conversation and I, I, I want to follow the mood and the tone around that. I, I never have any idea where we're going to get to by the end. I think creativity and curiosity teaches us risk. I think mm. when we allow ourselves to play, to be adventurous, um, where we don't necessarily know the outcome, then we have a chance at allowing uncertainty into our lives and we find a, a dare I say it, a safe space. I'm not, mm. I'm not quite sure about the notion of safe spaces. I, I agree very much with the notion of psychological safety because you need mm. that. Although, you know, it's, if I, if I think, sit back and reflect on you know, parts of my own life where there was not much psychological safety, it's, its absence taught me some stuff too. So, you know, every experience you can learn something from and every, every experience you can approach in a, in a particular way as, 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 as long as you've got the, the capacity to reflect on it, I guess, and, and, to, and to make something useful of it. I think creativity teaches us how to take risks and how to deal with that uncertainty along the but way. You're right in that reflection. Like, I think, you know, maybe one thing as educators that we don't do particularly well for ourselves and also for our young people is having that conversation after the fact around what mm. went well, what didn't go well, what would you do differently? Like, That's there's it. so much power in that explicit reflection at the end of an experience that then... I don't know, like that propels you forward. See, you'd be an experiential education person. You'd understand that we need to spend a quarter of our time reflecting if we're really going to make a benefit of, of what it is that we do. Uh, too many educators don't allow space in their lives for reflection. They rush from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. They find themselves being carried away with a cult of busy. Um, and mm. yet the most important thing that they could be doing every day and every week, if they want to be really high-performance educators, um, is to reflect. You know what we've learned from our research into high-performance learning um, that occurs outside schools that we want to bring in schools. The one thing that makes the most difference is the amount of quality time you spend on reflecting, and then on shedding stuff that isn't working, and just letting it go and moving into the next space. But you know, if we, if we want to cling to our things, you know, best lesson I was ever taught, um, David Thomas, God bless him, who's still teaching. He's in his 70s. He's still teaching um, ancient history. He taught me and he was my master teacher um, when I became a teacher. And at the end of my first year of teaching, he put all my stuff in a cupboard locked in his room. And I went, I went along to him um, the next year and I said, can I have my stuff back? And he said, no, you've got to do it again because you've got different kids this year. So, so why would you use the same materials as last year? You need to do it this year. And, you know, you know to, to his great credit, that's pretty much it. That's, that's what I do now. And, you know, even, even now I, I, I look at presentations and I look at when, when I'm asked to speak and I'm asked to do things. And I really do. I go back and, and I present from scratch. I, I construct from where it needs to be because that's putting the learner at the centre. Um, and I don't know if I do it particularly well, but at least I try along the way. So. It's also that, um, that being hungry for feedback in that process as well. And I think that, 
you know, not only for educators, but also for young people, you know, the, the work that we do with project-based and inquiry-based learning, I always find it so curious that many schools say, oh, like, I, I really want to embed that with our high achievers. Um, you know, that's the cohort that we want to work with when it comes to that kind of pedagogy, because, you know, they can do it. Um, but the research, you know, and our data time and time again with our program is that our high achieving young people struggle the most with an inquiry based or a project based learning unit because they're actually not used to getting feedback. They're used to getting that draft handed back and there's very few errors on it. Um, and so they never actually have to practice any form of feedback fitness. They're used to getting it right the first time. And if we've got educators as well who are used to being high achieving educators, it's the same thing. We, we, we have this, you know, real lack of feedback fitness. And therefore, we see it as a hit to our ego rather than something that can inform our practice. Um, and so, you know, there's great power in building really purposeful feedback loops in for, for young people and also for educators where you can separate ego from practice and see that being hungry for feedback is actually, you know, that's the metric for success. And I love like James Dyson, who obviously, unfortunately, of no relation to me, despite the, the vacuum fortune you know, did 5,127 prototypes of the vacuum before he released the first product. And I love to talk to rooms of educators and say, when do we give young people that many opportunities to try, you know, to, to get incrementally better in a piece of work before they hand it in? Often they get one crack at a draft and we provide one round of feedback and then they're expected to just hand it in at the end of that. And I think the best assessment opportunities are the ones that allow those multiple spaces for young people to get feedback at different levels in order to to really learn the process of incremental growth and i think it's the same thing for educators in our practice as well um wow it's just every time this conversation keeps going there's another thing that i'm learning and there's another thing um that we can add to our our armory of advice for educators nicole there's an enormous amount that you're doing at the moment that we haven't even got to and we're not going to get to in this conversation <laughs> You know, we could be talking about YouthX, we could be talking about, you know, which is Australia's only startup accelerator program for school-age entrepreneurs. We could be talking about your catapult cards, which is a process-driven card game. It takes users through ideating, prototyping, pitching, um, innovative, scalable and sustainable businesses. We could talk about the, the fact that 50% of the profits from catapult card kits go towards supporting youth-led ventures to launch and scale through the provision of micro-funding opportunities and industry mentoring. We could talk about future anything in the hundreds of schools and 20,000 plus students around the country who've benefited from your programs. But actually, I think the best thing to do is actually just is to acknowledge that it's learning about you that's going to help us in this moment. I'm sure there'll be plenty of listeners out there who are going to go and check out all the stuff that you're doing um, and, and connect with you and they're going to want to learn more. Um, and, and for those who do, go to futureanything.com and that would be a really good place to start. I've, it's been an absolute privilege to get to know you today and to learn from and with you and to share a little bit along the way. Uh, I'm going to go away and think quite a lot about some of the bits and pieces in and around this and um, maybe I'll try and practice a bit of forgiveness for that problem that I'm wrestling with at the moment. So, um, Nicole, thank you so much for being on this Game Changers special series. Yeah, thank, look, thanks for having me. It's been um, a real joy to share a conversation. And, and look, you know, I think the only bad question is the one you don't ask. So, you know, I'd love to connect to other educators out there who, who are curious to understand more about what we do. So, you know, please do reach out and shoot us an email or, or connect over the socials. Thanks, Nicole. 
Game Changers is a podcast for those who want to change the game of school. Produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and powered by a school for tomorrow, Game Changers is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play and SoundCloud. Tell your friends and don't forget to subscribe. Let's go.